Hi, I'm Jim Ojoa, writer, director, creature, creator of the eco horror film Strange Nature. And you are watching without your head. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Pierce. Barrelsheimer, writer and director of Crabs, which is an amazing film, and not just because you're here. I think this is great. Thank you. Thank you so much. We were talking beforehand about the stripe and thing, but um, what I liked about it is the movie evolves as you watch it. It starts as one kind of movie, kind of becomes Gremlins-esque, and then it becomes a kaiju film all all in one movie. Yeah, yeah. I... uh... I, I, I didn't know how many movies I was going to ever get to make. And so I figured I'd just make all of them sort of in one, <laughs> one film. Let's <laughs> throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. No, and it really works. It's very fun. And like, I'm all for something with, with like a deep theme or social commentary. But sometimes I like to watch something that's very fun. And, and this is definitely it. Yeah, we really tried to avoid uh, any any social. Com- I mean, we we didn't want the movie to be placed in any one time period or reference any real locations or characters or anything. It was the intention from the very beginning was just to make something fun. And this is your first feature. Yep, that's pretty wild. So, uh, so how does that come about? Uh, I saw you produced a couple things, and then you know, how does that go to? Because a lot of people I know they'll make a short, a few shorts, and then they'll make a feature. How did it come about? Like, oh, I'm, I'm making an actual feature. Yeah, I um, I did a bunch of shorts in college that will never see the light of the day because they're All terrible. Right. But the the whole intention behind that was sort of to uh, learn how to do things that I didn't know how to do. So I did like uh, a bunch of gore effects in one of them and stop motion. I used to I used to do a lot of stop motion animation um, as a kid, and then um, I got a job off of Craigslist uh, as a sort of assistant to somebody that then um, the editor on that project hired me as sort of a, a PA, but but the the first movie I ever worked on, Sunbelt Express, um, we didn't have a huge budget. And so I started as like, a would never worked on a film set. So they're like, um, if you want to come to set, we don't really have any money for you. I'm like, that's fine. I just want to be in every meeting. Like, I don't have to get paid. Um, I can take some time off. I just want to be like a fly on the wall for everything so I can learn how to how to make a movie. And, uh, I got to do that. And after about the first week, they're like, well, you're, you're basically producing. So we'll give you a producer credit. And then they hired me off of that one onto, um, Diverge, which is a, uh, like a low budget sci-fi movie. And I was sort of in charge of one. We, we shot it in three or four different locations. And so I, I handled one of the main locations. And then after that, the producers are like, Hey, we know you want to direct. Uh, do you have anything you want to direct? And at the time I was trying to figure out kind of what movie would get my foot in the door at the film industry that would be cheap to make. And I had this whole other uh, film called Willa, which is the name of our film company is Willa Film LLC, but only because we started going to production in this other movie called Willa and then shifted gears, but didn't want to have to redo the paperwork for the company. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah. Um, and so that was like, but it was like a possession movie. And I realized that possession movies were really popular at the time. And it was like during the um, insidious uh, kind of age. And uh, one of the producers gave me the best advice I've ever gotten, which was like, if you're not completely in love with your movie idea, don't make it. Like if you're, if you're making it to make something else later, like don't do that because you might be stuck with it for three or four years. 
Um, and I'm like, well, that's kind of what I'm doing. What I really want to make is this crazy crabs movie that I wrote when I was 19. And so I gave them the script and they're like, we have no idea how to do this. We don't know how to do any of the special effects. Uh, but if you can sort of figure that part out, we'll help you with the rest. And, uh, and so a bunch of just like serendipitous things lined up that we got all that figured out. And, uh, and now we're, we're here. I love it. So did, did you, you didn't go to film school then, or did you go to film school? No, no, I went to uh, Davidson college in North Carolina and um, I'm technically an English major, but only because the head of the English department is a big, he teaches the one film class that they had. And uh, he's like, well, I can do independent studies with you in film and count them as English credits because I didn't really want to be taking any other classes besides film classes. But I also knew that like, if I went to traditional film school, I've never been like a, a, I never loved school. And so I was really worried that if I went to traditional film school and I was doing film all day, every day and had to do it sort of structured like that. um, You kind of lose the love of it maybe. I might lose the love of it because there's so many things that I loved growing up that like, as soon as I had to do them in school, I'm like, well, I used to love science. And then like, I, I love biology. And then I had to do biology in 10th grade and really didn't like it. And so it's like, I wanted to make sure I didn't lose my love of film, which is the whole reason I didn't go to film school. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I ask is I have a lot of friends, independent film and a lot of them, I liked what you said about you were on the film set and that's kind of like how you learn to make a movie. Yeah. Cause I have friends who, uh, for trauma, uh, trauma, for example, some people hate trauma who, who've worked with it and some people love it. And the people who love it have told me they, they knew going in, they wouldn't make money or anything, but they used it as their film school. Yep. Yeah. Trauma. Th- we, we have a crazy relationship with trauma. The movie does. Um, so I, again, I, I had no idea how to do any of the special effects or anything. Um, and I was living in New York city at the time. And I, uh, I saw that a uh, big ass spider, um, <laughs> yeah was screening at one of the local theaters. It was having like its midnight premiere. And so I dragged one of my buddies uh, to go see Big Ass Spider. And the only other people in the theater were Lloyd Kaufman and his wife because Lloyd Kaufman produced the movie. And so he was, but it was literally the four of us. So afterwards I started talking to Lloyd and he's like, I'm like, you know, can I have 10 minutes of your time just to ask some questions? I'm trying to get this movie off the ground. I'm trying to figure out the special effects. And he goes, well, why don't you come down to Troma Studios? I'll give you an entire day. He gave me a full day of his time. He read my script. He put me in touch with Jim Ojala, who used to do, like the guy who did the creatures on crabs did the creatures on Poultrygeist. Mm-hmm. And so without Lloyd, the movie wouldn't exist. I mean, it's like the only reason this got off the ground was because of Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah, he's, uh, from my experience with him, a uh, very uh, nice guy. And he's always mm. there, very helpful. I've had him on the show and he's helped me with stuff. He's in uh, my feature film that uh, is at uh, festivals right now. But oh, he's just awesome. a, what's that? Sorry. What's your film? Uh, the Once in Future Smash and End Zone 2. Uh, okay, two movies cool. that are playing together. It, we uh, Real awesome. quick, it had their world premiere at uh, Fright Fest of London, US premiere and Scream Fest, and it's uh, it's been playing. It just started the film uh, festival run. Which Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, we were at Fright Fest last year. Have you, uh, did you get to go to Fright yeah, Fest? Yeah, was, uh, right. I was there one other time as press, which was cool, but being there with my own movie was a really awesome experience. That's amazing. Yeah. So did you get to go to, to Fright Fest? I did. I did. And um, uh, there's a guy named Dave that dresses up every year. Did you see him dressing up in front of the theaters? I don't believe so. Actually, if I did it, it uh, I think I might have seen the first time I was there. Okay. Does he have a tattoo down his arm that says Freight Fest? So someone right? does. So he, yeah. 
Anyway, he he dressed up as a crab, and I had no idea. Oh, really? I just arrived on the day that the screening was, and there's a guy dressed up as a crab, like promoting the movie. <laughs> I had no idea. He was. I anyway, love that. That's awesome. Great guy, and Fright Fest is a lot of fun. Yeah. So we'll talk more about the festival run because I think that's very exciting. But uh, also, I want to mention because you mentioned Jim Ojala, who I found on the show. He's a really cool guy. And, oh, nice. Uh, and the uh, yeah, the effects are awesome. But you said you had a background, you know, doing stop motion. Was there ever a time you thought maybe you'd do stop motion for the movie? Originally, I wanted to do. I well, I always toyed with the ending going two different ways. I I, I love stop motion animation. I love it's incredibly hard and complicated to do properly. Um, so I knew that that would have been a really challenging way to do the final fight scene. I looked into trying to do it that way, but it just immediately was like. Nope, this is going to cost way too much money to do to do it right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I thought about doing a rip. So the plan was to have a really authentic sort of 1950s Godzilla style fight at the end where we build a miniature version of the town and have them destroy the town yeah. on the set. And we would actually have like a little in costumes and yeah. yeah. And uh, so we built the costumes with that plan in mind and then researched how much it would cost to do the miniatures and the miniature town was just immediately out of our budget um so that's why we used the drone footage instead because that was a lot cheaper but yeah i would have loved to do stop motion i'd still love to do something with stop motion in the future i just um i know to do it well is very hard yeah i'm a big fan of stop motion anytime it does pop up in modern movies which is rare but i'm always very excited and mm -hmm. uh so what was some of the stop motion stuff that got you into it i, I assume like ray harryhausen Oh yeah, but um, I my, uh, my first stop motion love my first the first thing that I ever saw that made me want to do movies at all was South Park. Oh, and awesome. I, I thought that was like I I gotta I gotta do that. Yeah, and so I would do like I tried to imitate it and cut out little cardboard puppets, um, and then I I used Windows Movie Maker and basically just had it <laughs> like my computer was in this little desk yeah. area, and I I would do the animation up against the wall with a little webcam and then I'd like move it and take photo and move it and take a photo. Um, and so I tried doing clay once and it was significantly harder. So I mostly stuck with the paper cutouts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I ended up doing uh, again, I didn't like school. So like I, I would talk to my teachers. I, there's a couple teachers I actually got that would let me do um, stop motion animations instead of papers. And so I'd get to cool. do, I made um, great expectations. Like I did an adaptation <laughs> of great expectations yeah. using stop motion animation. I yeah. love that because I think, um, you know, some teachers wouldn't let people do that, but it, it clearly helped because you actually ended up going on to make a movie. Yeah. And the, there were, there was a significant number of teachers that let me do it, which was especially in a public school, which is yeah, it's funny. Surprising. You also mentioned South Park because I actually thought some of the lines in the movie reminded me of like South Park humor. And I yeah. even wrote that in my notes, which I thought was pretty cool. Because I also do think that there's the visuals are so cool that I think some of the comedy might get overlooked because I found it very funny, just some of the, the silly lines. Thank you. I mean, yeah, the South Park is just that tone, the fun tone of South Park, especially early South Park, is uh, it can't be beat. It's just it's just my favorite. Yeah. So when it first started, honestly, I was like, oh, this is probably like a sci-fi kind of like a sci-fi movie. Like mm -hmm. that's its own subgenre, really. I think sci-fi oh, yeah. movies and nothing against those. But I like that. It, it's a lot more. It's it's a lot of different film styles into one. Yeah, there's um, there's a version of this movie that was mostly like 
horny college kids getting killed, right? Like there's, there's, there's that version of it that could have been, but I really wanted to do something that was, um, like my first horror movie, like something that I know there's blood in it and there's drugs and there's sex, but theoretically like a 15 year old could watch it, right? Like it's not, there's nothing mean in it. There's nothing. It's supposed to be a fun movie first and foremost before it's anything else. Right. So I, I, and I wanted there to be like some sweet tones to it that you don't necessarily get in a lot of the sci-fi movies. Like, like the romances in the sci-fi movies are typically like, Nothing to nothing against them, but you you don't necessarily get the there's nothing there's not it's just not sweet right like right, there's right. there's not a lot of innocence in it and and I thought because it's sort of like my first horror movie um, I wanted to add some innocence to the relationships and stuff yeah um so uh, real quick about Jim Ojala so he was set up through uh, through trauma through uh, Lloyd yeah yep and did yeah. you guys did you like uh, right away like. Uh, did you guys mesh like how how you were going to make this? Did he really get like what you were going for? Oh, immediately. I mean, Jim, we could this wouldn't exist obviously without Jim. I mean, Jim um is such a master at what he does. And normally when he gets to work on movies, he typically does like there's like one effect that they perfect and it's just like there's one part of the movie because there's, you know, and they need one sort of special effect or one thing in the movie. Um, but what he told me with this one is like, it was his dream project because there's so much there's like, there's the little crabs that we had on remote controls. There's puppets, there's guys in suits, there's, you know, blood and and bodies getting torn apart and crabs that you can blow up and smash. And there's blue blood everywhere. And like, he got to do everything in the, in the film, like just, just everything that you could think of, uh, he sort of had free reign too. So a lot of the kills would be collaborative, like, okay, Jim, you know, here's what my thought is, but I don't know what we're capable of because I've never worked with special effects before. I don't know what we can do in our budget. And what do you think is going to look the best? Right. And so a lot of a lot of the um yeah, the effects and how it came about was was Jim's expertise and he just brought it all together. Now, and what about uh sho- shoehorn crabs? Is this just uh <laughs> I've never seen them in movies, which which is cool because I've seen sharks and lots of different things. I've never seen a shoehorn crab movie. Is that just like I something you've never seen before? Do you have a connection to shoehorn crabs? Oh the, yeah, the, um I so I grew up going down to Georgia for um Thanksgiving and the the horseshoe crab shells are just all over the beach. They're just everywhere. And I always thought they were terrifying. Like they've got the, the crazy legs underneath. They, do have a, like, they seem like from another era, like prehistoric. Yeah. yeah. And they got these like dead eyes on the top. There's just these like hard shell eyes. And anyway, I thought they were terrifying. And uh, I was just surprised that nobody had ever made a movie about them. Like there's movies about every other terrifying animal on earth. And I don't know. I mean, there's so many, there's so many like wild boar movies, but there's never been a horseshoe crab. Movie. I'm like, all right, well, yeah. that's untapped uh untapped genre i guess yeah yeah you started your own uh horseshoes which is cool yeah <laughs> uh, will we ever see any uh merchandise like uh the hor- uh, horseshoe like toys i would love to i mean we just released the movie uh like two weeks ago mm-hmm. so uh um, there should mention my raven's banner yeah Oh yeah. Yep. So in Canada, we're being released by Raven banner. And then, uh, in the U S I'm self-distributing it. So, uh, we've got a Blu-ray on Amazon and it's on all the platforms, but, um, I would love to do toys. 
I, I have this image of like a collector set of each of the different size toys for each of the characters. Yeah. And then uh, I'd love to do like a Radu figurine with the samurai sword and uh, like a removable crab vest uh, <laughs> and all the paint and stuff. Um, but yeah, if if it picks up and it does really well and there's a demand for merchandise, I, I have somebody who uh, I went to high school with that can design the toys. I mean, I'd love to uh, I have T-shirts with quotes from the movie all planned out. Like, I'd love to do stuff. It just depends on, you know, if it hits, we'll definitely do merchandise. Yeah. Along those lines, so um, I've seen various posters of the movie. Are, do you have a particular favorite? Because some are more uh, comedic, I think, and some yep. are more vague of what kind of movie it is. I do. Um, there's a bunch of different posters. Let me grab uh, my favorite one is the one for the U.S. release. That's uh, my is- personal favorite, too. I think it really oh, kind of awesome. gives across what the movie is. Yeah, I think so, too. I think this one um it it's the most like the tone of the film like the colors match the tone of the film a lot of the like pink and blue are our colors in the whole movie so it it really is great on that too yeah thank you yeah and i and we worked really hard to get the the um the actual logo right and then um this guy justin who i found on instagram did the artwork for the he actually did the back he did the whole packaging the whole packaging for the u.s blu-ray was all um Justin at uh, 1126 Studios. He does like uh, these horror movie posters for board games. So he has like oh, novels, nice. the shoots and ladders one. Anyway, they're great. And I found him on Instagram and he ended up doing our, our, that post. He might be, did he do like, uh, I remember seeing a um, Hungry Hunger Hippos. That's like, yep. that's him. Okay. Awesome. That's, him. That's, that's the one that sold me. I saw the Hungry Hunger Hippos one. I'm like, okay, he's got to do the poster. Yeah. For years on the show, because I started the show 2006, I always said, like that would be a great horror movie is hungry hungry hippos so then when it he would. made the poster it's like oh my god this rules yeah hippos would be a really good i have not seen a good horror hippo movie that would no be a, and if you if fun. you if you research them they are very i think they're one of the most dangerous animals of uh, them and, and moose yeah yep and yeah so if you ever see a hippo out there you know, stay away <laughs> so uh the if well also you mentioned radu that that character is amazing uh i'm a big fan and uh was that a hard uh character to uh to find the right person to play yes uh probably the hardest him and him and um uh bryce bryce's character hunter were very those two were the hardest um but for radu i knew i didn't want radu to be from anywhere like radu wouldn't work if he was from a country like right. it just the character it would come across as like is diminishing and racist and like a stereotype which i i didn't want to do i wanted to play with the stereotypes of 80s movies without any of sort of the baggage <laughs> right, of the stereotypes right. of 80s movies right like like there's the john hughes love story in the movie i wanted to have like it be a greatest hits of all the 80s and then remove all the stuff that doesn't work in 2022 right um so radu uh originally was supposed to be about 14. He was supposed to be a little kid. Mm-hmm. And um, we started trying to cast people and everyone that came in was doing very specific accents and that didn't work. Like, and I wrote the dialogue trying to be like, you, like nobody ever speaks that way in any accent that any, any person that doesn't speak English that has learned English as a second language does not speak like Radu, right? Like that's just nothing you've ever heard. (laughs) Uh And so I wrote the dialogue specifically to not, to try to not have it be, have him be from anywhere. Anyway, 
Um, a lot of the people that came in to do uh, to audition came from their their performance came from somewhere, and it just didn't work. And so anyway, my casting director, we were we were at sort of an impasse. We're like, well, what do we do here? Because this this we can't find somebody right for this. We got to rewrite it. And the casting director was like, hey, I have a hail mary for you. Uh, this is he's not at all what like just the description of the character is because he's not fourteen, um, but he's great. Check out his audition. And he sent us the audition. We're like, oh my god! All right, we're going to rewrite the movie to make it make sense for Chase to play Radu because Chase is just so amazing he is the the level of talent that he has is off the charts because when we started filming um the first scene with radu is my dialogue and it was our first day of filming and to me it's the weakest scene with radu because it he's doing my dialogue which is it's the my dialogue for radu is the worst part of radu because right after that chase i just heard him like improving as radu offset and i had this realization that oh my god i mean he is just so much funnier riffing than anything i could ever wrote and so i talked to chase i'm like hey can we you know you know the script right you, you you've read it you know what needs to be done in every scene right can you riff like can we can we ad lib a bunch of this and that's what he does he's he he's a professional like ad lib comedian and so the vast majority of everything after that is just chase it's just chase being hilarious and we would give him like prompts and he would go and he would just go and then we'd try something else and we'd just go and so on the on the blu-ray there's like twice as much radu in bloopers and he does a whole commentary throughout the whole movie as radu <laughs> all improv. that's amazing yeah yeah i, yeah, I would fan. love to he's listen insane. to that yeah I want to do a movie that's just entirely improv with Chase. Uh-huh. Yeah. That makes I love the character, but I actually like him even more now. So uh, I also like that it, like you said, there's I, I didn't know this uh watching it, you know, obviously that there's no place he's from. But I did like when I was watching it that they never referenced I don't think they even referenced that he's like the a foreign exchange student or anything. He's just this guy oh. who's who's talking this other like uh dialect and it's it just makes it hilarious to me. Yeah, we uh, I made up fake words so that like like his currency that he uses in his home country is Danukin, which is as <laughs> nonsense a word as Amorium Clustergram is, right? Like I I tried really hard to make sure that Radu could not be placed. Yeah. It totally works. And then uh, not to give away the theme, the end, the credits, but uh, an amazing theme song at the end. And that again was entirely him. I was just like Chase. I would love for you to sing the final song over the credits. The only I had, I had two guardrails. Um, no pop culture references because I didn't want uh, again the time period. I didn't want to be able to place the movie in any time period. And um, nothing. Don't say anything that's going to get us canceled. And other than that, free reign. Do whatever. Say whatever you want. And that was the first draft. Like he just he 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 played the guitar. He sang the song. He wrote the lyrics sent me that and i'm like oh my god it's it's perfect yeah it's great my my when i was listening to that though my only concern was i know on a lot of streaming sites today they just you know go through the uh, credits so quick i was like that would be a, a it's disservice to any movie but a huge disservice I here i know i know it's i'm i'm hoping that because there's dialogue over it maybe it won't count as credits right. i don't know but i've yeah, seen a couple movies recently where i think they purposely put stuff in there so so they're not sped over 
that, I, I hate that even um, even at the theater. I go to the you know, theater every, all the time. And as soon as the movie's over, a lot of times they turn the lights on and they just come in and start cleaning. I'm like, what the hell? I know. And I used to love, I mean, I loved growing up whenever there was a movie that had like bloopers over the credits at the mm-hmm. end. It was my favorite thing. Like, and I haven't really seen that. I mean, there's, there's always like the stinger at the end for Marvel movies, but I haven't seen a movie that has stuff happening during the credits uh, in a long time. And I love that. I mean, it's just, it's like stick around, give, I mean, I know that a lot of people want to get up and leave at the end, but it, yeah. uh, having a little bit of an incentive for the audience to stay and read the credits is, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's valuable so that everybody gets their name seen. Yeah, I agree 100%. Time. And uh, for me, like, especially at the theater, even home, but at the theater, something about the movie's over and you just kind of sit there and think about what you saw and read the credits. Yeah. And I think it's, 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 uh, it adds to the experience. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, uh, a movie, uh, it's on Shutter now, Wounded Fawn. Um, they they have a whole scene during the credits, and I thought it was it was kind of tricky how how they did that. Uh, oh, Pearl, cool. Pearl too uh, has something going on during the credits. I haven't seen Pearl yet. I own, okay. I bought it, but I haven't watched it yet. I'm okay. I love Dex. Yeah, yeah. I th- well, then I think you like Pearl. You know, there's a that's a thing. Um, a lot of people um, they always say like there's no good horror movies. I think this there's lots of good horror movies, especially this year. I think it's been a great year for horror films. I agree. Yeah, this year's been great. Yeah, independently and uh, theatrically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been so many good movies this year. This has been a really good year for movies. Yeah. And so uh, you mentioned the, the lead character. I really like his interaction with the sheriff. I think uh, both of these guys do a really great job. So uh, how about the sheriff? Uh, what was his? I have the name here. Uh, sheriff Flanagan. Uh, how, how about casting Sheriff Flanagan? Uh, he was the only person we saw for the role. Uh, uh, we got his audition and immediately cast Robert Craighead. He he's like a horror legend kind of guy. I mean, he's he's a character. He's been in everything. I mean, he was in Cujo. He was in uh, oh, I didn't realize that. Part of the Living Dead, and he plays the um, I forget the character's name, but in the new God of War video game uh, and Ragnarok, he is the blue guy who sells you stuff. So the little blue guy that follows Kratos around uh, is played by Robert Craighead. Oh, so it's really cool getting it was uh, Craig has a friend of mine. So getting to play God of War and then I hear I hear him as like the character that's walking next to me like, oh, that's that's super cool. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I also liked um, what was the last stuff I liked, but you said about kind of the sweetness. I like when you first see the, the hot teacher mm-hmm. and then uh, and then her relationship with with the with with the main uh, character. And I love when they show uh, when they show his yearbook. And he's he's clearly like the same age, and you don't even try to make him look younger. He's like a thirty year old guy, like uh, in in his yearbook, high school yearbook. And I was like, that that's pretty great. Yeah, uh, it, my originally she was supposed to be a little bit older, um, but Jessica auditioned and she was amazing, and I wasn't gonna not. Ca- I was I was like I would rather, and that was actually something that might be my directing style, I guess that I that I realized like over the course of actually directing the movie is that I would rather use the best take and cast the best actors than I would use the take that cuts well, right. Or cast the actor that makes sense logically, right. I'd rather get the best performance out of an actor uh, and, and have an actor that's amazing than I would an actor that looks the right role, but might not play the character the same way. It's like, to me, the feel of it is so much more important than the technical prowess of a film, right? So, like, there's edits in the movie where um, 
there's a one scene where a hunter's hands are like by his side and then the next they're like this and then the next they're like on his hips and then the next they're in his pockets and it just cuts <laughs> if you watch the scene it just his hands are all over the place as the as the scene is going on but each of those takes is a better performance than any other take Mm-hmm. And I'd rather have like the best performance where your eyes are going to go, right? Like if your eyes yeah. are not in the background, who cares, right? Like it technically, no, it's not good editing, right? It's, it's kind of shoddy editing, but I'd rather, I think an audience would care more about having a better, better take than I, yeah, I, I would agree hundred percent. I have a, uh, I know a friend of mine who they don't like taxi driver because like the, the scene in the in the diner, Robert De Niro's like cigarette or whatever is like different. I'm like, that means absolutely nothing to me. And they're fun, like little Easter eggs that, you know, unintentional or not. It it gives some I like I like when a movie feels handmade. You know what I mean? Like that feels like there was it's not perfect. There's like little wrinkles here and there that uh, and if you pick them out, you, I think I mean, like. I have a real connection to the second Ace Ventura movie. And part of it is that I know where all the wrinkles are, right? Like I can watch the movie and I'm like, oh, there's no chess pieces on the table in this scene and there's chess pieces in the next shot. So it, having those wrinkles and picking them out, I think also creates a little bit of a connection with the filmmaker and the audience too, because they get to see a little bit how the sausage was made, which is cool. Did you do your own editing then? Um, the editing process on this movie was totally backwards and wild and not the way it should be done. Um, I did the first pass of editing, but I have only ever edited like 15 minute shorts before. So I've never edited a feature. So I had no sense for timing or pacing or anything like that. Um, So I did the first cut and it definitely needed a second pass. So we brought it to Gustavo Cooper, uh, another director, and um, he did a pass, but we hadn't finished the final, we hadn't even shot the final fight scene. And it was cut. Uh, it, it basically it needed another pass, so I brought it to another editor, and we again we had, by that point we had shot the final fight scene, but hadn't done any of the visual effects on it, and so it was just raw green screen footage, and you couldn't really tell how the fight was going to play out. It was just it was like three hundred frames per second long takes. I mean, it was just it it wouldn't have edited. It was, it could never have been the final edit. So after the second editor edited it, I still wasn't totally happy with how it played. Um, and from that point until the VFX was finished was about four years. So I just couldn't help myself and I tinkered and I would sit and I would tinker and I would tinker and I would tinker and, um, eventually that's the final movie. So in the end, I basically re-edited it because I had the time to do it Mm -hmm. and I wasn't thrilled with it, uh, which is no fault to our, 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 our other editors. It was that I had too much time on my hands and I couldn't help play with it. And then I couldn't go back to what they'd already done. And they didn't have the time or the effort to go and tweak what I had already, what I had changed. And so it's sort of the movie is sort of this mishmash of three different editors. Um, And uh, I do not recommend anybody (laughs) do it that way. Don't edit with a time, like for any filmmaker, edit with a time frame where there's a beginning and then you have to be done at a certain point because 
if you're not done, you are going to tinker. And I'm a, I'm a perfectionist tinkerer. So I sat there and played with individual frames. And then like, at one point I went back, the VFX took so long that I ended up going back and, uh, rewatching all of our reels, like every single take from the whole movie and then swapped out takes. And about 50% of the movie, I was choosing separate takes because it's four years later and I'm looking at different things from new lenses. And I'm like, oh, well, that works a lot better because we changed this thing over here. So the characterization of the character here makes more sense now than it did with the previous edit. So we have to use this new take because now it makes sense. So yeah, ed- the editing was sort of a nightmare, but um, the final cut was my final cut. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> How frustrating was that? Uh, for Because four years... Uh, seems like a long time to you know to get the movie was it frustrating like is this ever gonna you know actually get released well it took us eight years to actually do the whole thing yeah we shot the movie in 2015 um so it was or 2014 i don't remember 2014 2015 but it took forever um and part of it was that uh we filmed the a unit so all the all the main character stuff and then the interior of the cockpit of the final fight scene but had no idea how to do the final fight and so that was a, you know, we filmed it on a green screen and then we ended up doing the drone footage and that took another two years to, to get that just in the can. And then uh, trying to figure out how to do the visual effects on a budget, I ended up going to Vietnam to do all of the green screen final fight work. Um, but that ended up taking about three years in Vietnam oh, wow. to, to do. And I ended up living in Vietnam for about nine months to oversee the project. Um, but they were using the project as sort of, uh, a training because we only had, you know, a small budget, they were using it to train their artists and then their artists would move on to other projects or leave the company. And so then a new artist would come on and not know how to pick up the previous artist's work. So they would start again. And so there's a lot of like starting again, starting again, starting again, in order to get the, the look consistent throughout the whole project. Um, and ended up not working out in Vietnam. So I took all our hard drives and moved it back to LA and then had another set of artists basically clean up all the work that was done in Vietnam and make it consistent and make it work. And so that took another year and a half. I mean, it took a long time and then we couldn't really even do a sound mix or, or uh, uh, music composition until the final fight scene was in the bag because we didn't even know what the edit was going to look like for the final fight until all the shots were done because the way that the edit, we, I ended up editing it until we were doing the sound mix, basically, because the final fight, even when all the shots were composited, um, some of it didn't work for timing reasons. So like, and we shot it in 300 frames per second. And so a lot of it had to be speed ramps. And so we're adding, I was adding all these effects. I had to learn how to use After Effects in order to add these like speed ramps and camera shakes and all sorts of stuff to get the edit right. Um, so yeah, it took a really long time and I, I didn't know, I mean, I, I'm stubborn. So like if I start a project, I'm, I'm going to finish it one way or another, but, uh, it was disheartening. I mean, it was, it was, it's the hardest thing I've ever done by a thousand X. I mean, it was the amount of time and uh, our producers didn't know how to do VFX. So a lot of it, most of it was me being like, all right, well, I have to, I have to figure out how to do VFX. How do I do VFX? Right. And I don't know. So coming making it up from scratch. And then like, even, even now self-distributing, like I knew I wanted a really super high quality Blu-ray. 
but I'm self-distributing the movie. So how in the world do I make Blu-ray discs and get the license for the Blu-ray disc and like get the artwork done? How do I get the the, the right sleeve? And um, so ha- creating things from scratch is part of what took it so took the project so long is because at every stage I never really knew how to. I knew what I needed done and I knew how I wanted it to be at the end, but I didn't know how to get. Yeah. So I had to fail over and over and over and over again, trying to get to where I wanted to get to. So uh, with the self-distribution, how did you come to that uh, conclusion? Because distribution uh, in modern day, is uh, there's a lot of pitfalls to, to fall into. You don't, uh, uh, I know from experience in, in the last year. It was a very hard decision. Um, I went back and forth on it a lot. Um, we got some offers, nothing close to what I was hoping for. Um, part of it is, I think just because the nature of the industry today is different than it was eight years ago, right? Like when we made the movie, I think our prospects were a lot different than it was, than it, than it would be now. Right. So the amount of money you get up front for a movie is not a ton today. It just, it just isn't unless you're, unless you're winning Sundance, you're not making six figures. and um the idea that a distribution company would pay us up front and then they would pay the marketing expenses and which is fifteen thousand dollars like across the board like every deal we looked at fifteen thousand dollar marketing expense so then and they would have to make back and then they would have additional expenses and some distribution companies would tell us what those additional expenses were and some of them would not and the idea that there was a nebulous number attached that could be, you know, whatever it is that they would need to make back before we started seeing any money. I was like, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with the idea that, and then, so then I, I also have a fantastic lawyer. My lawyer, I, I, I love my lawyer. Um, and he showed me all of the places that like, had I not had my lawyer, I never would have seen a dime. And so when we started pushing back on distribution contracts and like, hey, can we have an expense cap, right? You know, they're giving us $60,000 up front, $15,000 of, uh, you know, now we're at $75,000. Can we have an expense cap so that there's no additional expenses on top? And they come back with a $150,000 expense cap. I'm like, so we have to make $150,000 before we see anything. And then, then what? Like how, how that it just didn't, that didn't make sense to me. I would rather see no money up front at all. And that was something I kept on trying to do with the distribution companies was like, I want to see not, I don't care about an MG. I want to see the movie make as much money as it possibly can over the lifetime of the movie, not up front, right? Like, cause up front to me is a, you know, if you made your movie for $50,000 and you get $50,000 up front, great, like awesome. You're paid back. You're good. But the idea that you would get money up front and then it might be three, four, five years after your movie's out before you start recouping any more of the cost of the film, like that just didn't, it just didn't sit well with me. And then um, I had also heard enough horror stories from other filmmakers that I know and talk to about, uh, about just the, the, the operations of distribution companies in the modern age uh, that I'm like, I work too damn hard on this project for too long to put it in the hands of somebody else who may care about it and may not. And one of the things I keep hearing is that 
the upfront conversations with distribution companies are not indicative of the long-term relationship with the distribution company. That they might be able, they might say all the right things up front and and bring you on board and say you're gonna, you know, you're the the chosen one. We love you so much. And then two months later, you don't hear anything. And that was consistent across the board from every single filmmaker that I talked to. And I'm like, look, if the only thing that these distribution companies are bringing to the table is money up front, which I don't care about because I would rather have the film make more money in the long term and take more of a percentage of that than like just a, a chunk of change in the beginning and a marketing expense. I'm like, I'll find a way to pay for the marketing expense and put the movie on myself. So I end up using Bitmax, um, which there's like a couple different aggregation companies that'll basically put it on all the platforms for you. Mm-hmm. And Bitmax costs 25, I think 20, $2,500 to put upfront, to put it on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu. Uh, but we keep 100% of the proceeds. So if somebody pays, you know, 12 bucks for it on iTunes, iTunes, Apple takes $3 and then we keep the rest. So Bitmax doesn't keep anything in between. So every dollar that's coming in, I'm seeing how many people are watching the movie. I'm getting real-time analytics of like, okay, we sold this many uh, in the US, this many in the UK. And that's another thing is that, so Raven Banner sold the film to like 10 territories around the world, Mm -hmm. so traditional distribution company ways of doing things. And then I sold it everywhere else. So it's out around the world. You know, we didn't do any marketing in the UK, but my hope is that like, this is the type of movie that has long legs. So it might not, you know, it takes the right people to see it in the beginning and then they tell their friends about it and then they tell their friends about it. And then, you know, it'll hopefully have a long lifespan. That's how, uh, yeah, that's how a lot of uh, the indie movie, even though I know Terr- Terrifier 2 is doing really good right yeah, out of the gate, but Terrifier, when it first came out, like um, I'm, I was one of the first podcasts of the people on because I saw it and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And it was not that I'm taking credit, but I'm just, you know, it was before it really started to get a buzz behind it. And then, you know, it was like a month or two later, it really started to grow. And, and then, you know, now it's, you know, this huge movie. Yeah. Yeah, they're they are killing it. It's amazing to watch. Yeah, 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 I would say that you. I know a lot of people don't like those movies. That's totally fine. But uh, I do think it's good for independent filmmakers that something like that could do do so well. Oh, agreed. The inspiration there is huge. I mean, just the fact that they're able to do what they're doing and get the reception that they are is awesome. It's good for everybody that that movie's doing. But like you're saying, though, I think a lot of. you know, especially this level movies, uh, the word of mouth helps the internet of uh, Velocipastor was another one. I think, yeah. uh, that, you know, people liked it and they start talking about it. And then, you know, after time people, you know, start buying it and watching it. Yeah. I think that's, you know, in the end of the day, either the movie's going to sit on its own two feet, right. It's going to stand on its own two feet, not sit on its own two feet. It's going to stand on its own two feet or it's not right. Like, and, and no amount of push or leverage from a distribution company is going to make or break the movie in the long term, right? In the short term, maybe like short term, maybe they're going to get it in all the places that it needs to get to. But in the long term, like either the movie will do well or it won't. And I don't think anything is going to make or break that except for the quality of the film itself. So I would rather, I would rather gamble on that than give it to a distribution company that may not take care of it the way I would want to take care of it. 
And I know from, uh, I don't have much experience here, but from my friends, uh, what you're saying about get, getting it on TV and those platforms, a lot of the people, they'll tell you that's what they'll do. But from people I know say you, it's so easy just to do it yourself, like like you just mentioned. I, in this process, I have, I find it very hard to um, look at a distribution deal and come up with a good reason why to why 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 traditional distribution basically like why traditional distribution the the distribution company needs to come to the table with something that makes them worth 30% of all of the money of the movie right that's basically what they all take is 30% plus you know costs and whatever but whatever they're bringing to the table has to be worth 30% and if it's not worth 30% don't do that deal because the idea that like Film Hub, you can use for free and they put, they take 20%, but they put it on all the platforms, right? So you can get all the platforms for free with no cost, right? Or Bitmax, they give you 100%, but they, you know, it's just a 25,000 or not 25,000, $2,500 cost up front, but then you keep everything. So if you think your movie is going to make more than $2,500, it's right. I mean, you're making your money back on, on Bitmax right away. So the, the, if you're going to make a distribution deal, they have to sell themselves to you for a very good reason why they're worth 30%. And if it's worth, and if it's, you know, $15,000 upfront in marketing expenses, and there's no minimum guarantee at all, which is some of the deals we saw, then that what you're, what you're saying by making that deal is 30% of all of the proceeds for your film over that period of time is worth the marketing expenses that they're going to put in $15,000 and uh, whatever pull their social media has. So then you'd have to look at the social media of the distribution companies and say, you know, how valuable is their 20,000 followers? Could you get it to a podcaster with 20,000 followers? Like, could you get on a podcast? So the idea that there's gatekeeping is necessary in the independent film world right now is just, it's just not true. Like you, you can get it out there and it's harder, like significantly, there's a lot of time and energy it takes to actually do that. Um, but I think I think in the future distribution companies are going to have to sell themselves worth thirty percent, pretty hard, uh, because there are more people that are doing self distribution and um, it costs a lot less. And I I don't want to say any names because they send me movie stuff, but there are distribution companies that I think actually have a it kind of gives the movie a negative vibe right away because. I won't like I won't say any names, but I'll be if I get a movie from a certain place, a few of them that I know, I'll be like, oh, it's probably not good. And then it almost has to surprise me. Like I'd watch it, oh, even though this was from so and so, it's actually a lot better than I expected it to be. Yeah, yeah. And and the um I know I know a couple of those. And um the way I what I learned about the way that they operate is basically they they give almost no money up front. Um very little money up front and they they it's basically a shotgun approach so they they buy 300 400 movies um and maybe one of them does well and they're not banking on all of them doing well at all they're basically just saying one of these will hit and it'll recoup the cost for the rest of the the money we've spent on the other ones so your if your movie is not I mean, it's, it's, it's another gamble that I'm like, why gamble there? If your movie's going to be the one that hits, right? If it's going to be, if they buy 300 movies and one of them hits, if your movie's going to be the one that hits, it's going to hit with them or not. 
right? It's just going to hit. Your movie's just going to do well. So what do they, again, what do they bring to the table besides the name? And some of the times now, I agree, the names, because of that shotgun approach, if you watch five of the movies that don't hit and you're like, oh, you know, these aren't very good, the movie that did hit with that name, you might not take a second look at it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And that's why, like, uh, Raven's Banner, honestly, like, they might have not have 8,000 movies, but, um, and uh, you might not like every movie on there, but there's definitely, like, a higher standard of movies that they put up. Agreed. They they really curate their movies. They do a very good job curating what they pick up. Yeah. They're incredibly consistent in that in that way. Yeah. Back to the movie itself, though, the reason I'm wearing the, uh, besides I just like uh, Gremlins, is uh, the bar scene especially is, uh, I was like, oh man, this is very Gremlins-esque. And I assume that had to be uh, on purpose. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, I, I just stole that scene from Gremlins. <laughs> yeah. like, there's, there's, that's my least creative scene is, is the bar scene just because I, I was like, I want to do that and pointed to the Gremlins scene. And, but it was also the hardest scene of the whole movie to Not film. Because I filmed it at like four in the morning once the bar had closed. And we we basically had to close down the bar and then and then go through morning. Um, and each of the special effects takes a while to set up and to do, you know, to to do it multiple times in order to get the performance right and make sure that the puppets are working. And like um, and that whole scene is all special effects. I mean, it's all it's all practical effects. And so we probably shot two pages and the scene itself was probably six pages. So there's four pages of stuff that I wanted in that scene that we didn't get to shoot. So there's like, I I had, I had crabs flying on the, on the fan. (laughs) Right, right. We had crabs playing darts with human heads. Like there was (laughs) crabs were controlling the people playing darts with a human head. Like we had so much extra stuff that uh, I wish we could have gotten for that scene to make it even bigger. Like if there's any scene that I could have gone back and redone to get, to amplify it would be it would be that scene i love what we got but like oh there's so much more <laughs> maybe for a sequel down the road Who knows? yeah oh definitely yeah go back to the bar uh, uh so you had to film at the bar at night how about at a, finding a school that would let you film that we were really lucky uh there were two schools in that town so that town is uh, there's four there's four schools but there's only two would have even worked um and we ended up shooting at the middle school and uh the principal of the middle school was like i'll let you shoot here but i need to be in the movie and we're like great all right cool no worries so she's the bartender so the bartender is the principal of the local middle school and we went to look at the this other middle school or this other high school first and the colors were all strange it was like very lots of color like a rainbow school and it just didn't play into our theme and we're like I mean, we can do some set decoration and like kind of make it work with the tone of the rest of the movie, but like, that's a lot of work. And this is, this is like, it's not really what we're looking for. And then we found this other school and all the lockers are blue. Like it's just, everything is exactly the color scheme that we could ever possibly want. And the classroom was perfect. And it already had like all the colorful stuff hanging in the classroom, the underwater stuff. Like it was it was perfect. I mean, it, it, there's so many parts of this movie that it seemed like everything was going to fail and like, oh, it's all over. And then the next day, the best thing that could possibly happen happened. Like our lead actor, um, our original lead actor 
filmed, we filmed a whole day with him. And then he went skateboarding that night and broke his arm. So we had not, re- not to laugh at his broken arm, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and we had to recast him in 24 hours and we got Dylan to come out and play Philip. And he was like a thousand X better. I'm not going to name the other actor, but he's like a thousand times better. And it was like, Oh, this is night and day. Like, this is amazing. Like this, this, we thought it was the end of the world because we're like, oh, our lead actor, we don't have a lead actor anymore. And then Dylan comes on and just knocks all our socks off. Um, and then like we lost all of our locations because originally the the two brothers were supposed to live in suburbia. And uh, this is supposed to take place in like a in like a, a attached garage in suburbia. And the owners of the house found out the opening scene of the movie was a sex scene. And they're like, you're not longer allowed to film. You can't. Nope, this doesn't work anymore. So we had to pack up and move. And we found the trailers and we found the barn. Originally, it was also supposed to, the the giant mechanical shark was supposed to be made out of train parts. And we're going to shoot at this abandoned train lot. And then we found out that there were dangerous chemicals on the train lot and we couldn't get insurance to film there. We're like, oh shit, like what what do we do? So um, anyway, uh, one of our, uh, I think one of our PAs found the location with the two trailers and the, um, the big barn and everything basically most of the movie takes place there but that was that was a and all of the um the cockpit for the mechanical shark was built using pieces of stuff that we found in the barn on location like so the continuity between the stuff that's in the barn and the look of the shark is only because we lost another location like two days before we were supposed to film so it's it's amazing how many things are like we thought it was the end of the world and then it ended up being the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so eight years, you know, uh, all these ups and downs getting the movie made. Um, we mentioned, you know, watching it at, at Fright Fest. So when you were, when you were done, did you know, like, I'm going to submit it to festivals? Like what were your plans? Yeah. So Raven Banner um, did the first, uh, there are, so the Raven Banner is our Canadian sales agent or sorry, our Canadian distributor and our world sales agent. And they um, were handling a lot of the film festival stuff in the beginning. Um, and so they submitted it to Fright Fest. So uh, basically, they're just like, well, they wanted to submit it to film festivals for a long time. And um, we've submitted like works in progress and stuff like that. But the movie just wasn't done. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fright Fest was the first time that we got in somewhere and the movie was done, um, which was really cool. So that, so that was, was the premiere. That was the premiere. It was, oh, was that's Fright cool. Fest. London, which is yeah. awesome. Oh, we got to, yeah. we were opening night on the IMAX screen and I'd only ever seen the movie on my little laptop. Right. So I was so nervous. Like, I hope it looks good on a big, and it looked beautiful. Like it, it was awesome. And right away it was the first, you know, three minutes are like either you're on board or you're not. And I wanted to make the beginning of the movie, like either this is the type of movie for you and you'll know it right away. And if it's not the type of movie for you, like you don't need to keep watching the rest is just not for you. Like, great. I'm not going to waste your time. I'd rather, you know, right away, whether this is for you or not. Right. Um, and so I was really nervous in the first three minutes and then everyone started laughing at the right spot. I'm like, okay, all right, we'll we'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. And Fright Fest in particular for festivals, they show a lot of different kind of movies because they'll show yeah. like something that's kind of funny. They'll show like more what I consider festival movies. And then they'll show some things and they'll show some just very bizarre things that might not even play anywhere else. So, so um, I think that makes for an interesting uh, audience because uh, 
like you said, this might not be a traditional festival movie for uh, for another festival. So, yeah, going into it, you might not know exactly how people are going to react to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really lucky with Fright Fest that we I mean, we had a great time slot and they did a really great job sort of promoting the tone of the movie, too. Like uh, it it hit the it was also right during COVID, like right. Oh, yeah, yeah the end ish of not the end, but like it was during COVID enough that um, we were also worried that people weren't going to show up, but people did. It was, I mean, it was packed and for every movie, I mean, it was, it was the reception they, cause they had canceled it the year before because of COVID. And this is the right. first year they've done it since then. Um, and uh, yeah, everyone wore their masks and it was, uh, it was, it was really exciting getting to be back in movie theaters with the people that really missed being in movie theaters. Yeah. getting to see brand new movies like that was that was such a cool experience not having gone to movies during covid and then getting to go and be part of a community of people that just absolutely love going to movies and especially horror movies it was it was really really fun i love fright fest yeah uh yeah i agree 100 percent. that was the main thing like obviously people had it worse than going to movies and stuff. But it was the main thing that, that I missed was uh, going to movies with, you know, especially the festivals. Uh, like you said, cause you're around uh, like-minded people who really enjoy uh, the genre. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So what would you say the benefits of uh, having your film at a festival are? Oh, all, all of them. Um, the benefits of having the film at a festival. There's so many. Um, I think getting to meet the audience as a filmmaker is insanely valuable. Like the only people, especially from, from a selfish point of view too, like from a, from a, I love the idea that other people get to enjoy something that I made. Cause at this point it doesn't feel if I feel detached from the project, like it's, I've worked on it for eight years. It feel like it's, it's its own thing. It has no real bearing on, on me. So there's like, I get to share it with people feeling un, unattached to it. Um, and then getting to talk to them about it after, what did they like, what they didn't like, like that's been really fun. But um, I, the people that watched the movie before going to festivals were like my mom, um, my fiance, like, you know, friends that they like me, they don't necessarily like horror movies. Right. So right. there's, it's like, oh, it's great. Then I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'm glad you liked it, but like, yeah. they would have liked it if it was the right. worst yeah. Yeah. In the whole yeah. world. Mom's, I hope your mom's not gonna say, "Oh man, that sucked." That was yeah. terrible, right? Doing? Yeah. No, right. So getting to getting to share it with people, the people that I made it for, right? Like the people that are like me that love horror movies and love film festivals and love indie movies and like love creature features and gore and like getting to share it with them was insanely valuable and getting and getting to yeah like getting to talk movies because i don't really have a community of of like-minded film geeks like myself in my little bubble right? right and so getting to be in that environment and chat movies uh with other people and especially meeting other filmmakers and like like that that's got to be the most valuable thing is going through the process of actually making a movie from script to festival to distribution is there's so many facets of that process that have you had you not gone through it you wouldn't know what what 
somebody else has really gone through, right? But getting to meet other filmmakers that have gone through that same process, it's like you can you're immediately bonded with all these people because you've gone through you know the art of war together right the war of art mm-hmm. like you you've done you've built something that they know how difficult it is to build and so there's camaraderie there and you can you can sh- swap not only like horror stories but like this worked really well do this right or i had no idea that i could even do this thing you know try that and and so there's there's a cuz everybody's you know there's a lot of similarities between filmmakers, I think, in terms of like how they just get a project done. But then each step is so individual that you can learn so much by somebody from somebody that has also gone through the same thing that like, yeah, getting to talk to other filmmakers is just really cathartic because it, it made me feel not so alone in uh, in the process. Yeah. So crabs. Where can you get it now? Obviously, uh, Raven's Banner. If you're in Canada and if uh, in some other countries, and uh, when will it, when will the U.S. Uh, physical release be out? It's out now. Oh, it's um, out so, now. Okay, I'm sorry. Yep, yep. So the Blu-ray is on Amazon now. Um, Amazon just jacked up the price a little bit, so it's a little oh. more expensive than it should be, and I got to figure out why. Um, it might just be because it's Christmas. Uh, but um, it's on iTunes. Google Play, Apple TV, and Vudu, uh, and Amazon Prime, and then the Blu-ray is on Amazon. And there should be there's there's two DVDs that are on Amazon right now. One of them is the French version, and the other version is the the other one's the Australian version. So the U.S. DVD should be coming out in like February. But I wanted to get the Blu-ray out first uh, yeah. with all the. Yeah, you so mentioned many. so there's multiple uh, commentary. Oh yeah, so I, there's I do a commentary. Uh, Jim Ojala and I do a commentary. Oh, nice. Chase done, does one as Radu. And then we have, um, we storyboarded most of the movie. And so uh, I edited the storyboards together as animatics. So there's like full animatics for 10 different scenes or something. There's bloopers. There's about an hour and a half of raw behind the scenes footage of like how we shot the movie. There's pre production stuff, like building the creatures. Then there's onset stuff. And then there's the green screen filming the final fight scene stuff. Um, there's deleted scenes, alternate scenes. There's a whole bunch of stuff. There's probably two, three, two plus hours of content on the movie or on the, on the Blu-ray. Well, that's very exciting. Cause I'm guilty of, of being, I always tell people get physical, but I, uh, physical uh, media, but I'm guilty of like, well, it's easier just to watch online, except for when there's a whole bunch of cool extras, especially yeah. I'm a big fan of commentary tracks. And that's a big seller to me if there's a lot of cool stuff uh, to actually buy the movie. Chase's Chase's commentary as Radu is the is I mean there's a lot of other good reasons to get the Blu-ray, but that's the reason. Like we, I I made I put a little sticker on the back of the Blu-ray box uh, that is like pointing specifically that Radu has a commentary because it's so funny. I mean it's just it's so funny. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to you know because I had full control over the over the contents of the Blu-ray in the U.S. Um, I. I grew up watching the commentaries and like behind the scenes stuff. And that's kind of how I learned how to direct was that's a was, lot of my uh, friends have said the same thing. Yeah. That, uh, valuable. Yeah. And, and that, I, miss, I miss that. I miss, I miss having, I agree hundred percent like feature packed Blu-rays. Cause all that, behind, I mean, I, I got a whole shelf of like making of movie books and it's, it's so cool to get to see, how something was made and all the, all the stuff that was left out of the movie, like getting the full complete picture of a project 
um, I think makes you appreciate the the project yeah. itself more. So if there's people that like the movie, I wanted, I really wanted there to be something that like, you know, 16 year old me that would go out and look for that stuff would be like, Oh, this has everything I wanted. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing I miss. Uh, Cause it's, it's used to be everything had a commentary track, but it, it's, uh, it's really rare now. It's, uh, yeah. there's not too many and especially multiples uh, to me. That's great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was fun recording the commentaries too. Cause like Jim, the one Jim and I did is, is just a conversation about the special effects. So we just talked about like special effects for the whole runtime of the film. And then mine, I got to go into all the tiny little, I mean, there's, there's so many little tiny things that no one is ever going to pick up on if you watch the movie. So I wanted to hit on every one of those that I possibly could in my commentary. So I'm like, editing my commentary just trying to squeeze as much information as i possibly can into every second yeah. just to have like here's all the little bloopers and all the little things that happened and uh and then chases is just free form commenting yeah. as rod which is, it's yeah very the fun. technical side of recording your own commentary do you have to keep pausing it then so you so you can get in everything oh yeah. yeah yeah uh jim and i didn't do that jim and uh -huh. i had just a beginning to end you know conversation uh freeform. But for my commentary, I would record and then stop and then record and then stop. And uh, and then if it took too long, I would try to trim it and specifically say things concisely so that I could get as much information. Because sometimes like I've heard commentary tracks and there's like five minute breaks. Yeah, yeah. It happened. I'm like, sometimes I so think, did I actually turn off the commentary or what's happening? Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm like, no, no, there's... There's infinite amount of information. I could fill up five commentary tracks, but nobody wants that, right? So uh, let me try to use every moment I can to get in the things that I I would want. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And uh, so I'm I'm actually going to get a copy of that because uh, I love crabs. Uh, the movie, not you know crabs. And <laughs> but no, it was awesome. Not just because you're here, thank really you. fun. I posted on my Facebook. I really liked the movie. And, oh, thank you. And uh, I saw Frank Farrell really liked it too. The guy who made us uh, Spookies back in the '80s. He was a big fan of the movie. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it's very exciting. So uh, yeah, I go out and get it. It'd be a good Christmas present for uh, for your weird uh, movie friends. That's right. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, do you have anything in the works? I know. You've been busy with crabs, but uh, what, do you have anything uh, coming out in the near future? Um, not any. Yeah, I'm I'm writing a couple different projects. Um, if crabs takes off, I've got ideas for crabs two, three, four, and five. I'd love to just expand and like go really wild. Like I see crabs as like if I could do if I could if I could up the ante of every crabs movie kind of in the same way that like the fast and the furious is doing their franchise <laughs> right right space i'd love to do that i would love to have crabs just be this ever-expanding absurdist uh franchise so each of the movies goes bigger and crazier and wilder and and more out there um but the movie i'm, I'm working on a couple different projects the one i'm is most likely to get made is a really simple horror movie it like it the the premise is basically there's somebody stalking a family and i wanted to crabs has a lot going on there's a lot of characters there's a lot of special effects there's a lot of you know um really complicated sort of 
stuff happening. There's a lot of interpersonal relationship dynamics and like, it's just, it's, it's convoluted. Like the whole, the movie itself is a, is, is just a convoluted piece. And I really want to do something that's simple, but I want to execute it as well as I possibly can. Like, like take all of the complexity down to something really simple and execute it as well as I, yeah, as well as I possibly can. And so, um, this is, this is basically a, somebody is stalking a family and they don't know why. Um, and I want it to be the scariest movie I could ever make. Like the intention is to make it as scary as I possibly can, because that's something that with crabs, I felt like if I failed at anything, it was making it scary. The, 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 the balance between horror and comedy was supposed to be a little more even and, it, and it's way it's a hundred percent comedy and it's, or it's you know 95 percent comedy and five percent horror um so i didn't really and i learned that pretty quickly we had to lean into the comedy just basically because how the suits worked and how the how the setting was and it just it, we had to lean into comedy in order to not fail at mm-hmm. the horror so with this project i want it to be all horror like very little comedy but um nail the what i didn't get to do with crabs basically okay well i'm looking forward to stranger anything danger, you work on danger currently is the title what is it sorry stranger danger stranger danger all right <laughs> title interesting yeah it, it gives me the creeps so we'll find out <laughs> well i love talking with you i love crabs and Thank i you. look forward to any uh, anything you work on in the future thanks so much yeah thanks for having me on this has been great yeah thank you yeah i thought it's been a great interview Yeah, me too. Dad was a tad insane. I knew him for years, but he never remembered my name. He'd fall. I'd tell him count to ten. I'm counting, but he's never getting back up again. You broke the law. We played on your violence, but all you ever do is talk. Son, you're getting back to Well, you'll be up on parole, but you're never getting back out again. Inside of a lava lamp Always burning, always burning You're the God of war What are you fighting for? What are you fighting for, my love? What are you fighting for, my love? Man, I think I'm in a jam Well, I had a dream, but I didn't know You're a cop, you're a bad piece of work You're insane, the flame, you're a dick and a jerk And I'm sorry, why? Cause I'm tired of you And I know you know you hate it when we're screaming And there's no we can do It's on the time we went to the puppet show Always punching, always lunging You're the god of war What are you fighting for? What are you fighting for, my love? What are you fighting for, my 
best of times You'd be running with a knife But you're the god of life Take my final advice Take my parting advice, my love Love thy neighbor and you'll